Chapter fifty three of Dead Men's Shoes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Judy Mason. Dead Men's Shoes by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter fifty three. Committed for trial. The adjourned inquiry is again resumed before the coroner two days after the return of Alexis from Liverpool with his companion the butler, whom he has contrived to keep snugly hidden under Robert Fontthorpe's roof, where Podmore, his wife and children, have been boarded and lodged, and kept in custody by the faithful Hester, who watches her charges as a cat watches a mouse. "'Remember, you are not one of you to put so much as your noses out of doors till I come for you,' says Alexis impressively. "'Not a creature in Redcastle is to know of your return till the right moment.' "'As long as I have my meals regular, I'm satisfied,' replies Podmore. "'I never was a prowler about the streets.' "'So the Podmore family occupy the kitchen at Dr. Fonthorpe's, "'and no one outside the doctor's house knows anything about these extra inmates.' Alexis and Mr. Levinson have crossed each other on the railroad, and that gentleman has returned from a bootless journey to the Washington, considerably out of temper. He has reconciled himself, however, to this wasted expedition in finding what his client has done. Joel Pilgrim is still at the Coach and Horses, where he lives well and seems to enjoy life. He plays billiards and makes himself eminently agreeable to the youth of Redcastle, Fred Stormont included, but he complains loudly of his detention in the town on account of this sad business of his old friend's mysterious death, while his own affairs need his presence in Calcutta. This dawdling old corridor may drag the inquiry out for the next month, he says, and at last arrive at the conclusion that my poor friend was poisoned by some person or persons unknown. I don't see that there's evidence enough to bring the crime home to that poor girl, and it seems a hard thing that a young and lovely woman should be placed in such a position. Frederick sighs and shakes his head and shrugs his shoulders. It is hard, he says, and I've positively worshipped that girl, you know, devoted myself to her quite awfully, and now to find that there was a husband in the background all the while? "'Shows a want of candor, you know.' "'Proves an artful disposition, certainly,' replies Mr. Pilgrim. "'But if every artful young woman took to disposing of people with prussic acid, "'there'd be an alarming decrease in the population.' "'True,' says Fred. "'Well, I'm sure she didn't do it, poor thing. "'But I'm sorry to say the opinion of the town is against her.' He says this with an air which implies that to be condemned by public opinion in Redcastle is to have received a sentence from a supreme tribunal and to be found guilty at a bar from which there is no court of appeal. I really feel for her, you know, says Fred, as he prostrates himself upon the green cloth to aim at a distant ball. But the town thinks badly of the case. She had the poison in her possession, you know, and she ran away, you know. It's difficult to avoid making four out of two such twos. Look suspicious, certainly, replies Mr. Pilgrim, 
as far as the running away goes she might have done that to avoid marrying you certainly says fred reflectively well that would have been a very childish proceeding answers joel she had only to tell me the truth and all question of marriage would have been at an end but women do odd things sometimes you know they're apt to get wrong in their heads when they're frightened i don't think sybil is that sort of girl she must have been a very cool hand to come here to her uncle the wife of a man whose name he detested and pass herself off as a single woman and play her cards to inherit a fortune true says frederick despondently and his opinion of sybil is a little worse than it was before mr pilgrim undertook her defence it is just possible that mr pilgrim would not remain at redcastle quite so patiently were it not for a suspicion on his part that a certain shabby little man in black who hangs about the public rooms of the hotel and spends a good deal of his time in the hall and porch and contrives always to be in the way when mr pilgrim goes out nay even happens to have business or pleasure that takes him exactly the same way has been set as a watch upon somebody's movements and that any attempt to hasten his intended journey to calcutta might be attended with unpleasant consequences whatever perils may surround mr pilgrim's path will be best overcome by a calm adherence to his present policy or at least so argues that gentleman and he quietly awaits the conclusion of the examination in which his evidence is required on this bright summer morning the same crowd is again gathered in the well-known assembly room a room famous for town and county balls for concerts and fancy fairs and other local festivities but affording a scene of more absorbing interest to-day than the most aristocratic of dances or charity bazaars mrs stormont is there again with her constant ally mrs groshen wearing the same veils and bonnets and seated in the same sheltered corner near the reporter's table there is mr levinson sitting near the coroner with that memnon's head of his stony and inexpressive but certainly not given to melodious breathings at sunrise or any other time there sits sibyl pale as marble and calm as a statue her husband standing behind her chair. Today there are fresh witnesses to be examined, so runs the rumor, and there is an eager curiosity about these new witnesses and the evidence they may give. The first witness called is Bathsheba Skinner, spinster, lately cook and housekeeper in the employment of the deceased. "'What can that woman have to say about the case?' mutters Joel Pilgrim to Colonel Stormont, who is standing next to him. "'Not much, I should think, unless she poisoned him in one of her curries,' replies the colonel. "'Deuced good curries they were!' Bathsheba Skinner is sworn, and stands up before the assembly, vinegar-faced, but eminently respectable, with black kid gloves, a trifle too long in the fingers on her industrious hands, and a pictorial brooch a little smaller than a cheese plate clasping her rusty black lace shawl you were in the habit of preparing all nourishment that was taken up to mr trenchard's room says the coroner after a few preliminary questions broths arrowroot and so on yes sir i did it all with my own hands there was many things i might have left to the kitchen maid but i felt it was my duty to see to it myself 
there was not a thing in the way of beef tea or jelly or tapioca or arrowroot that went up to mr trenchard which was not prepared by my own hands and are you sure that nothing of a poisonous nature entered into any of these things as sure as i am that i'm alive sir come you may have used essences to flavour your jelly or your tapioca essential oil of almonds or at any rate essence of almonds that is a favourite flavouring with cooks and a dangerous one didn't you use essence of almonds to flavour mr trenchard's jelly i hadn't a drop in the house sir i never have held with such stuff when i went almond flavouring i used the best jordans at two shillings a pound but i know my business better than to use almond flavouring of any kind for an invalid invalid cookery can't be too simple you did not even use bitter almonds or ratafia peach kernels or anything of that kind no sir you slept on the same floor as podmore the butler i believe yes sir my room was next to his did you hear anything remarkable any unusual stir or movement in short anything at all out of the common course in podmore's room or on the stairs leading to podmore's room during the night of your master's death well sir i did hear something which struck me at the time as curious and yet it might mean nothing i mentioned it afterwards to podmore and he put me down you mustn't tell us what you said to podmore or how he answered you that isn't evidence we want to know what you heard on the night of the twenty-third of june well sir i am a light sleeper at all times and perhaps i was extra wakeful on that night on account of the wedding that was fixed for the next day it was to be quite a quiet wedding and there was no breakfast ordered but i'd cooked a tongue and a pair of fowls and made a jelly and a cream or two and boiled a bit of salmon for a mayonnaise and got everything in order to put a pretty little luncheon on the table and the fag and worry of that had overtired me so that i got very little sleep it was broad daylight and i was just dropping off when i heard podmore get up and go downstairs in his creaky slippers he's gone down to give master his medicine says i to myself i won't try to go to sleep no more till he comes up again or else he'll be startling me just as i'm dropping off comfortable again he won't be gone above five minutes well i waited and waited but instead of being gone five minutes as usual it was a good half hour before podmore came upstairs again did you look at your watch asks the precise juryman lord no sir but i can guess a half hour as well as any one i've got into the way of it over my roasting a good cook knows the value of time it was a full half hour before podmore came up and then he came up ever so slowly holding to the baluster and his footstep was as heavy as lead and when he got into his room he flung himself down on his bed and gave a groan what was the matter with you last night i asked him at breakfast time at first he didn't seem as if he understood what i meant but when i told him i'd heard him groaning he said he'd had an attack of spasms and he'd been down to the pantry to look for some mustard for a poultice i didn't think much more of it after that and an hour later the house was all upset by my master's death but i've thought of it since many times do you know what time it was when podmore went downstairs 
it was a few minutes after five i'd heard the stable clock strike a little before and i took particular notice on account of it being just an hour late for mr trenchard's medicine for four o'clock was the hour at which he ought to have took it there was nothing else he remarked that night no sir i think that will do i beg your pardon interposes mr levison i should like to ask the witness one or two questions pray will you be kind enough mrs skinner to tell the jury of a conversation which you heard outside mr trenchard's door on the last evening but one before his death i did certainly overhear a conversation sir what can any such conversation or any eavesdropping whatever have to do with the question at issue cries joel pilgrim livid with anger or fear the change in his countenance is noticed by every one just as the less marked change during the last examination was noticed by a few we shall see how far the conversation is relevant sir replies the coroner when mrs skinner has answered mr levinson's question i did hear a conversation sir between my master and mr pilgrim says mrs skinner with a vindictive look at joel but i was not eavesdropping i've lived too long in the best of families to be an eavesdropper or to be suspected of being such by any gentleman calling himself a gentleman what i heard that night i heard promiscuous and i stayed to hear no more than reached my ears promiscuous as i went past mr trenchard's door mrs skinner goes on to relate the conversation which she had described to alexis on his visit to lancaster lodge gentlemen cries joel vehemently this is an abominable fabrication prompted by some hidden influence no such conversation took place my mr trenchard held no such threat over me mrs skinner must have been a long time crossing the landing to hear all this gentlemen of the jury i tell you that she could not have heard it in that time she did not hear it at any time but she invented it or it has been invented for her mr pilgrim i really cannot allow this said the coroner you will better appreciate mr pilgrim's warmth when you have heard the next witness says mr levison a faint flush of colour warms sibyl's marble cheek she feels as if light were coming swiftly through the gloom her husband has told her nothing except to trust in providence and in him she has so trusted and those quiet monotonous days in redcastle jail are the most peaceful days she has known since she fled from dixon street and the poverty more than three years ago joel pilgrim looks intently to the other end of the room watching for the appearance of that witness of whom mr levinson has spoken he starts and the leaden hue of his countenance takes a more death-like shade when some one calls joseph podmore podmore advances to the little railed-off space which has been made for the witnesses he is very pale and is evidently nervous but he is perfectly sober now mr podmore says levison when a few questions chiefly repetitive had been asked by the corridor will you be good enough to state what happened within your knowledge on the night of mr trenchard's death the ex-butler rubs his hands nervously looks round the assembly shifts his balance from one foot to the other coughs dubiously and then begins gentlemen of the jury and your worship i am about to make a statement which i ought to have made before it is preyed upon my mind having kept it back but i am a poor man 
with a young family dependent upon my exertions in service i actually was on my way to new york gentlemen of the jury and your honour and i got as far on my voyage as liverpool when the facts in question preyed upon my mind to that degree that i felt i must come back to this town to reveal them i hope this will plead in my favour your worship and gentlemen of the jury if there is any irregularity in my not having made this revelation sooner the man is drunk or mad cries joel savagely the man is sober to-day mr pilgrim says the coroner go on mr podmore the statement i have to make relates to the night of my master's death the night of june twenty-third i was an hour late gentlemen on that night in going downstairs to give my master his medicine i had slept extra heavy and it was five o'clock instead of four when i woke i went down as usual the house was very quiet but i took notice that the door of mr pilgrim's bedroom the secondary door opening on to the landing stood ajar so thinks i mr pilgrim is with my master perhaps he has given the old gentleman his medicine i wasn't so much surprised as i might have been at mr pilgrim being astir so early for he was always early it was one of his indian ways well gentlemen of the jury i goes to my master's door and when i puts my hand against it the door opens a little way without any noise for the locks at lancaster lodge are old-fashioned box locks and the catches give way so that half your time though a door looks to be shut it's not really fastened the door gave way to my hand and i looked in mr trenchard was sitting up in bed and mr pilgrim was opening a bottle of soda water on the dressing-table i saw him pour some of the soda water into a tumbler and then i saw him quick as lightning pour something out of a bottle in his other hand as i live gentlemen of the jury it didn't strike me at that moment that there was any harm i thought it was some kind of medicine or drops like coraldine or coral or some of those new-fangled opiates and i didn't feel myself called on to interfere there was no time for me to turn it over in my mind you see there wasn't a moment between mr pilgrim's pouring the stuff into the glass and his handing the glass to my master mr trencher drank it off as a draught it weren't above a third of a bottle of soda-water he sat for an instant bolt upright his eyes straining out of his head and glassy then he gave one long gasp and fell back on his pillow purple in the face as if you'd clutched him by the throat and strangled him i rushed into the room and lifted him up in my arms i thought at first he was in a fit but when i stooped over i smelt a sharp strong smell like bitter almonds and then i knew it was prussic acid what have you given him i asked but mr pilgrim made no answer you've killed him i said and then he told me that it was accident he had taken the wrong bottle he had taken a bottle of prussic acid which mr trenchard kept in his medicine chest among other drugs instead of coral he seemed in a dreadful state of mind i couldn't help feeling for him who could tell whether it wasn't an accident and if it was anybody might have found themselves in the same position spare us your reflections if you please says the coroner had your master any medicine chest in his room yes there was a small box with about half a dozen bottles in partitions do you know one of these bottles to have contained prussic acid in any form whatever 
I can't say that I do, your worship. There was hartshorn and cattle put oil and tincture of rhubarb and such like. You have named three bottles out of the half dozen, says the coroner. Mr. Levison whispers into his ear. Yes, that would be best, says the coroner, and he beckons one of the men in attendance and dispatches him on some errand. Did Mr. Pilgrim offer you money to hold your tongue about what you had seen, asked the coroner. Podmore fences with this question for a little, but ends by confessing that Joel Pilgrim did offer him money, that he gave him twenty pounds on the spot, and promised to provide for him hereafter. He further admits that Joel had instigated him to emigrate to America, and had given him neither rest nor peace till he had made all the arrangements for his departure. Mr. Pilgrim had paid his passage on board the Orinoco. By the time this question is settled, the man who has been sent out by the coroner returns, carrying a small mahogany case with brass plates at the corners, an old-fashioned case, divided into six compartments, each containing a small square bottle of very thick glass. These bottles the coroner takes out one by one, examines them, and exhibits them to the jury. The six bottles contain hartshorn, sal volatile, opium, tincture of rhubarb, cajaput oil, and syrup of squills. Each bottle is carefully labeled with a label in Stephen Trenchard's handwriting pasted on the glass. Gentlemen, says the coroner, I think we have now arrived at a stage in this inquiry when a further adjournment will be necessary. It will be as well to give time for the inquiry which is going on before the magistrate. There is a little consultation and the jury are dismissed. White to the very lips, Joel Pilgrim turns to Colonel Stormont with a contemptuous shrug of the shoulders. Was there ever anything so absurd as the manner of this inquiry, he asks? There's actually a premium offered for perjury. This man, Secretan, has had ample time to bribe any number of false witnesses. What more easy than for him to get up this story and pay the housekeeper and butler for perjuring themselves? Colonel Stormont makes no reply. He feels rather uncomfortable in Mr. Pilgrim's neighborhood after the butler's evidence. The story may be a tissue of lies woven by Sybil's husband, but on the other hand, it is as likely to be true, and that dark face of Joel Pilgrim's tells strange tales. There's a general move towards the door. Mr. Pilgrim is about to pass out with the rest when a hand is laid upon his shoulder and Mr. Judbury, the detective officer, takes possession of him. What do you mean by this? asks Joel indignantly. Only that I have a warrant for your apprehension under suspicion of being concerned in the murder of Mr. Trenchard, replies Judbury coolly. I've had my eye upon you for a good time, but it's always foolish to hurry these things, and if we'd hurried you, we shouldn't have had Podmore's attempt to get away to New York, which brought matters to what I call a focus. Come along, sir. I've got a fly outside. You may just as well come quietly. And Joel submits, knowing quite enough about English law and English customs to be aware that anything in the way of resistance would be worse than useless. He shrugs his shoulders and affects to take the matter lightly, though those white lips and haggard eyes of his give the lie to his assumed carelessness. 
if your redcastle magistrates choose to take me into custody on a fabricated charge they do it at their own peril he says loud enough for those around him to hear i shall make them pay as heavily for their pig-headed folly as the law will enable me step inside sir says mr jodbury you shall have plenty of law free gratis for nothing the fly drives off and Joel makes his entrance for the first time under that medieval archway whose gates were opened just a week ago to admit Sybil. There is a further examination before the magistrates next day. The same witnesses repeat the same evidence. Mr. Levison cross-questions and is unusually active. Joel Pilgrim sits in the seat of the accused, side by side with Sybil. He is defended, or rather the case is watched for him, by a rival of mr levison's a gentleman equal in renown in the criminal courts further details are extorted from podmore under this cross-firing of interrogation but joel pilgrim's solicitor strives in vain to shake one iota of his testimony if this be perjury there never was a more accomplished perjurer or a false witness that held more firmly to the lesson he had learned when the examination of witnesses is concluded, Mr. Levison addresses the magistrates and urges that his client shall be dismissed without a stain upon her character. The magistrates confer together and agree that there is not sufficient evidence to connect Sybil Secretan with the murder and that she may therefore be set at liberty. This being done, Mr. Levison suggests that she shall be placed in the witness box and examined as to her possession of the prussic acid. Pale and trembling a little, Sybil takes the necessary oath upon the small black book and waits to answer the magistrate's questions. You have heard your sister's evidence as to your abstraction of the prussic acid from the bottle in your uncle's surgery? Yes. Do you admit to the truth of that statement? Yes, I was in great distress of mind at the time, and I thought if there were no other way out of my troubles, I might destroy myself. I do not say that I meant to do such a wicked thing. I only considered it as a means of release from my difficulties, open to me at the very last extremity. And you took the prussic acid with that idea? Yes. You had no other design whatever in taking it? None whatever. Did Mr. Pilgrim know that you had this poison in your possession? He did. How did that happen? Am I obliged to answer this question? asked Sybil. Yes, it is positively necessary for you to tell us everything relating to your possession of this prussic acid. It had been arranged by my uncle Trenchard that Mr. Pilgrim and I were to be married. My uncle did not know that I was married already. He had a prejudice against my husband's family, and I had been so foolish as to keep my marriage secret from him. Mr. Pilgrim went to York to obtain the license, and we were to have been married on the Saturday, the day on which I left Lancaster Lodge. I made up my mind to run away at the last rather than to tell Mr. Trenchard about my marriage. It was a cowardly act, I dare say, but I had deceived him so long that I feared his anger on hearing the truth. How does this bear upon Mr. Joel Pilgrim's knowing about the prussic acid? I'm coming to that. It was on the night of his return from York with the marriage license. 
he came up to my little sitting-room late that night between ten and eleven and told me about the license he had been dining and he seemed in very high spirits do you mean that he was intoxicated oh no he was only a little more excited than usual he talked a good deal about our marriage and for the first time in his life he tried to kiss me i showed him the prussic acid bottle and told him that i would sooner poison myself than let him touch my lips he was very angry and he told me that prussic acid was a dangerous thing for a woman to carry about her and that i was playing with edged tools did he take the bottle from you no what became of the bottle after that i really can't tell my intention was to put it back into my pocket but i was very much flurried at this time i may have left it on the table among the books and other things there were a great many things on the table when did you miss the bottle not till i was in london when it recurred to my memory searched my pocket for it but it was not to be found were you wearing the same dress you had on upon the evening when you showed mr pilgrim the bottle yes it is the dress i am wearing now this is all the inquiry is again adjourned the inquiry before the coroner is concluded next day the verdict willful murder against joel pilgrim the inquiry before the magistrates is concluded the day after by joel pilgrim's committal for trial on the capital charge End of chapter 53